This is Death Before Dishonor. I'm Genesee. My character is Xanatari. She's a good-aligned Kalishtar war priest. I'm Daniel. This symbol is renowned for being associated with the Rod of Orcus, the artifact that I'm after. I'm Eric. My, my name is, is Cesar. I was a, a slave worker for the uh, undead armies of Thay for 75 years. And I'm Tinzian. Shall we start this over again? One of the beauties of D&D. Can't end the story. Goes anywhere you want it. Welcome to the show. I'm Genesee. I'm Eric. And I'm the only running contestant for the representative of Krypton. <laughs> Yay, the delegate from Krypton has arrived. And this is Death Before Dishonor. This today is Friday, March 7th. This is episode 140 in a weekly series following a group of friends playing Dungeons and Dragons, hosted by the Grey Area Podcast. Uh, yeah, it's been a couple weeks since we recorded, and so I'm just going to toss it to Tanzia and let him catch us up on where we are currently. So good luck, Dungeon Master. Here we go. I'm actually not going to be catching us up tonight. Uh, we're going to be doing something a little bit different since Thorn is uh, stuck in the real world. So we've been batting around the idea of uh, exploring Xanatari's mind for a little bit. Recently, she's been uh, having to, well, plumb the depths of the Kalishtar hive mind, as it were, looking for some... Um, past information and things of that nature. So I thought it would be kind of neat uh, since we really can't do a story episode without Thorn being here properly, at least for picking up where we left off. So I figured each of us would work up some sort of random story that might occur, um, you know, within the, would have occurred within the Kalishtar at some point in time and thus be included in the hive mind. It doesn't necessarily have to pertain to Xanatari. Uh, in my case, it actually may or may not. I haven't quite figured that out, but it's something. Um, as far as uh, my story goes, if everyone else wants to join in at certain parts, then feel free to go ahead. But otherwise, I'm thinking that um, the point of this episode is going to be maybe an episode or two prior to this one. As the party is returning to Winterhaven from out in the fields of the Ziggurat. And Xanatari was kind of distracted and sitting in her saddle and just kind of riding along. Well, I guess it might be interesting to see what might have been playing in her head. Does that work for you, Xanatari? Yes, definitely so. Okay. Uh, which of you would like to go first? And I think... Um, Thorn's going to be tossing his in at some point in time, maybe first place in. Probably first place in, yes. Okay. Oh, God. Fine, I'll go first. I'm totally unprepared. I'll do the best I can, though. If you want me to go first, I yeah. will, but... It's... No, it's fine. Mine's fairly short. Okay. okay. So, is riding along, and considering the fact that she's about to, you know, visit Winterhaven, kind of wrap up affairs and then go to the Kalishtar, I guess just reviewing the things that maybe they've been through as a party and, you know, wondering what the Kalishtar as a people are going to make of the adventures we've had and some of the memories they're going to have to sift through over time. She's reviewing some, some thoughts of her own about, 
you know, obviously she knows the stories of all the other Kalashtar and those who have gone before her, even her current friends, because it's kind of the policy to, to share those memories. And I guess she's feeling slightly insecure about the, uh, about some of the nature of some of those. And, the, and so she's thinking back, like, what's the earliest memory I can recall, you know, as a child? You know, what is one of the first things that I can remember, you know, just gathering from the collective mind? And so the first thing she can remember is more of a classical origin story of the Kalashtar. And it is told to children, and it's sort of a memory that they've all shared as an experience of where the Kalashtar came from. So, it's a folk tale. In the world of Abir Torel, one day, three races of the many races that were created on the, uh, on the Earth, not Earth, but Amterel, uh, happened to be invited to this large feast. And as all the people of this entire planet are invited to this feast, we're going to focus on three different races. The drow, the humans of the time, which were very early humans, and the quarry, because at this point the uh, the Kalashar were not fully formed as a people, and they they have gathered this from the earliest memories of the quarry. So one day, Liliara, who is the quarry of the time, uh, Ranurar, who is a drow, and Bru, who's human, all go out to to dine at this feast that's being thrown by Terrell. And Terrell has some consciousness as a planet at this point, their mother planet. And they go to dine, and the mother planet waits for their return to to visit her consciousness and tell her what happened. So, <laughs> Rarar and Brew are rather selfish and greedy and new to the planet. They've decided to enjoy everything that they can get uh, from it at once, and they enjoy this great feast that's been prepared for them. They have no thought at all to saving any of it to take home any of these memories or any of these this food or anything of the experience to take home and tell to their mother, Terrell. Um, but while this is happening, only the quarry, who is Liliara, is remembering that they're, that Terrell is looking forward to having, having a discussion afterwards and finding out what they think of all the bounty that she sort of created for them. And so as every dainty dish is brought around, she is thinking very hard about the taste of it and the texture of it and trying to, you know, remember the colors and the smells that come from every single dish that goes by and that she might bring this back to have a trail share in the treat. On the return, the mother planet, who's kept watch for them all night long, says, well, children, what have you brought home for me? And tell me of your experiences. And... Rarar, uh, who is the drow and the eldest, actually says, I brought nothing home for you. I went out to enjoy myself with my friends and not to fetch a dinner for my mother. And Brew the human says, Neither have I brought anything home for you, mother. You could hardly expect me to bring a collection of good things for you when I merely went out on my, for my own pleasure. But Liliara said, Mother, fetch a plate and a piece of paper and sit down and we will, and you can see what I've brought you. And shaking her hands and thinking very carefully and reclining backwards, she brings up every memory that she's had of this meal and, you know, even the pieces that she saved and shown this choice dinner that's never seen before. And Terrell turns 
to Arara and says, Because you went out to amuse yourself with your friends and you feasted and enjoyed yourself without any thought of your mother at home, you're going to be cursed. And henceforth, you're going to be, uh, you're going to despise the rays of the sun. And you will be hot and scorching, so you will seek a place to hide from them and retreat into the earth and cover your head. And that's why the drow live underground to this day. And she said to Brew the human, you forgot your mother in the midst of your selfish pleasure, so here's your doom, that you will be reduced in your senses and be you know, oblivious to the beauty of the world around you, not be able to see the colors that you did not share with me or hear the sounds that you, you know, did not remember for me. And that's why the humans are somewhat limited in their senses. But she said to the quarry, uh, Liliara, daughter, because you remembered your mother and kept for her a share for her own enjoyment, you shall be, you know, ever cool, calm, and bright of mind. And that is, she said, uh, you will always be called blessed. And that's why the quarry went on to be able to form the Kalashtar and have some of the gifts that they've been given. So that's the, for one of the first memories she has as you know, a folk tale, if you will, of the people and how she ended up, how the quarry ended up forming the Kalashtar. Now it's time to hear from Thorn. Thorne's thoughts on a historical tale from the Kalashtar. Um, one thought that, that maybe at the hive mind of the Kalashtar is that uh, every hundred years, hundreds of shifters converge together on a day where the stars and the moon are at their brightest. On this night, uh, towns, villages and cities bar their doors and keep their windows open to catch a glimpse of the great beasts uh, their fur reflecting the starlight and their howls chilling the blood of all that hear them. The hunt lasts for four days, resulting in many dead wild animals and domestic animals. Um, and on the fourth day, a great chorus of howls arise from, from a hidden place in the forest. Uh, Kalashtar once stumbled upon this meeting place and concealed themselves out of fear and self-preservation. Uh, what they witnessed was that uh, more than just the fulfillment of some uh, primal need, but it was actually an election of uh, a new set of alphas for each pack, and uh, and their uh, their apex who will become the king of all shifters in the realm. Uh, the hunters strive for four days to prove their worthiness um, of of a role, uh, bringing their kills to the elders of the pack. Uh, the entirety of the event is gruesome to behold, with many sacrifices made to nameless wild gods, until one is chosen to succeed. That one is chosen by having the, the largest and grandest kill, um, as well as being selected through um, the calls of the wild gods, um, which are channeled through the elders. The Kalishtar witnessed the crowning of... Uh, the the most recent king, which happened probably about fifty years ago, um, as well as the alphas for each pack, and uh, afterwards, after all the sacrifices are made, there is a great feast, 
to ensure that there is no waste from the Great Hunt. Um, Kalishtar fled from the forest and returned to the Kalishtar tribe where he shared this uh, gruesome and awe-inspiring sight of how the shifters live uh, and commune between clans. That was excellent. Okay, well, moving on. The Kalishtar, um, in the past, developed much as any other sort of tribe. They had their Neolithic periods. They had their periods where they worked with stone. They hunted, they gathered, they learned skills, and were moving on. During one of these periods where the Kalishtar were not but a nomadic tribe, hunting, gathering what they can, very base work in metals to this point, but they were people. They were known to be fair. They were known that even those who weren't Kalishtar, should they fall into uh, one of the raiding parties of the Kalishtar while they were out hunting, there was a chance that the outside person would be able to um, walk away that day without too much insult. There's also not really a sense of people looking at the members of the Kalashtar, the babies, and going, only the strong shall survive. So, even then, you have diversity with the Kalashtar. This story is about a rather dull boy. Uh, The boy's name is lost to memory, is and perhaps even lost to him from way back in the day. Um, for he himself never really had much of a name. Sometimes he was called nice things. Sometimes he was called not nice things. The village kept him around. He was good. He would try to work. They would send him his simple tasks, and he would try to accomplish simple tasks. Usually, it was just a matter of moving animals from one area to another. And he could do that without roughly too much effort. But he was found to still have worth within the community. But he was also looking at all these other hunters, all these other gatherers, all these other great people who, at the end of the end of the day, when the sun went down below the horizon, this great shining orb and the silver sister came above the horizon. He was amongst his people that put their head down on their saddles and fell asleep. So he felt, you know, he belonged to the group. But he wanted more. There was thoughts of he too could be a warrior. He too could raise these animals. He too could do something more than what he had done. Well, he was good. He tried. He attempted to learn. And one day, he attempted to go hunting. And he left the village. Wandered out. He had fashioned himself, essentially, just by picking up a stick. He had fashioned to what he thought was a mighty, mighty spear. But he was going to go out and he was going to prove himself, as he had seen the others do. He didn't understand it, but he was going to go do it. He was gone for a day. He was gone for two days. 
he was gone for three days. Some thought within the hunters, and not in a callous way, but maybe he had gone to join the spirits. Because they figured even if he had come back and he was made a warrior, he was made a hunter, sadly, he was going to be fodder upon a spear or gored by an animal or just something because you needed a specific mindset. But he came back, showed up one day, more bedraggled than he had ever been. Clearly, he had eaten things that should not have been eaten. He was sick, but he was proud and he held himself high. And in his hand, he had an animal skin, but it was in the shape of a bag, you know, kind of held up and it was a mess, but he was proud, but it was a small bag and he approached and imitated what he had seen the warriors and the hunters do to the chief or the council. It's unclear at that point in time what it was within the Kalashtar. He presented himself before them, made a complete mess of the rituals, but he again had tried, so they respected that. He pulls out a tiny, tiny chipmunk. It is clearly dead, but he holds it up and says, I have hunted, I have succeeded, I have done something, I wish my place. I don't know what my place should be, but I feel that I should do something. And the chief or the council, it's unclear what the discussion was because it's, it's you know, hazy for those old, old memories. But they made him sort of the hunter extraordinaire. And he was sent out, back out of the village by himself because in his hunting he had also apparently gone through a series of bushes and you know brambles and whatever had collected but there was a certain type of leaf that some of the medicine men really really wanted some of the shamans male and female wanted this because it could help and heal and it was known for a good property, but it was very rare. This simple, dull boy had apparently found a great deal of them. He was sent out to go find them because they had others to handle meat, but he could handle this. He goes out wandering, unsure of what this plant is. He just thinks of it as another animal. He's going to go collect it, bring it back, and he's going to be proud. And the village is going to be proud for him. Well, he goes out and he spends another two days before his eye is caught by something in the distance. Now, he's not sure if these plants move or if they are very still laying in wait along the path or along in this woods, hoping that he will go by and not be the mighty hunter of them. He fails to pay attention for just a moment, but sometimes there is, even for the dull, dumb luck. Not an insulting way, but there is. And he falls 
into the earth, falls into a crevice. Well, you would think this is the end of the story for this dull boy. An ignominious death in a crevice. No. He bounces, but he deflects enough, and he's, you know, not necessarily, you know, used to falling more than just upon his face, so he doesn't tense up in all the wrong ways, and he he makes it eventually down this great shaft. And it is dark down there. But something a little bit away from him glimmers in the darkness. Colors. Colors he has never seen before. Colors that don't match the world above. There's some aspects of the colors that do match the world above. There's some things that are seen in the night only. There's some in the day. Some he has no idea what to put words to. So, he goes forth thinking that maybe this is where some of these plants are hiding for him to hunt. Okay. He goes forth and on the ground finds this swirling sort of matrix and cloud, just a sort of shape, some sort of mass, all sorts of colors coming from it. It is amazing. It is scary. It is terrifying. And this dull boy understands none of those emotions whatsoever. To him, it's something. It is not what he's hunting. But he thinks it's something that can benefit the cow tar. He's brought this chipmunk back before. He's brought these leaves that they want. He'll bring this back. Reaching down without fear or hazard to himself, he grabs it, picks it up. He finds it has no real weight, but he can clearly see it move in his hands. And he studies it, and he looks in. And this dull, dull boy sees the wonders of the universe, all of the various multiple planes of existence, all of these just wonderful intricacies. And for once, he understands them. In fact, he comes to understand that he is a dull boy. But something has changed. There's a moment where he blinks. And he's underground holding this thing. There's the next moment after blinking that he's standing back up above the, uh, the crevice. In fact, he's not even standing on the ground. He's hovering above the hole of the crevice. He's not quite sure how this happens, but he just knows that it's possible because this is no longer a dull boy. So he steps off and walks, and he keeps hunting, and he keeps looking for these plants. No idea where to go, but he finds these plants. He finds other plants, but still, it doesn't come back to anything that can compare to what he's holding in his hands. He's gone from the village for well over what we know as a month. His people have... Well, maybe not exactly written him off, but they think that maybe he ran into another tribe of someone and maybe they took him in. Maybe he found somewhere nice and he's sitting by the edge of, you know, a lake to this day and he learned to fish. Some think, well, he may be dead, but he tried. 
for you see, when he comes back, it is evident from a distance because he comes back at night that this is not the same boy that left. For he shines with all these myriad lights. All these colors have bled into him, illuminating out, drawing even the slightest curious mind within the Kaoshtar, their gaze. Even if he is coming in from behind them, they all turn to look at him. For the Kaoshtar understand that something is about to happen. This dull, dull boy showing up before the leaders in the council presents not only the leaves that he has been asked to gather, but he's also holding his hands out as if trying to show something. They don't see anything in his hands. He does. But he understands this. It doesn't frustrate him. He knows that he's succeeded. But he realizes he's able to teach these Kalashtar what it is that he's holding and make them even better. Not because he's feeling superior to them now, not to repay some unjust unjustness that he may have had in the past, for they've been very kind, so he's going to be kind back. He sees nothing wrong with this. For the completely unknowing boy has discovered magic. And he has brought it to the Kalashtar. That is why, to this day, all Kalashtar wizards employ some sort of quirk. They're not always the perfect book learners that you know from the humans or the elves or the others. There's always just something a little bit off, just as a nod from the very, very high and mighty Kalashtar to the very lowest Kalashtar, that sometimes it's the odd ones that make the best discoveries. And that's the end for mine. Cesar, would you uh, like to get this? Mm. I've got something, sure. I thought you were going to say, by the way, that all the wizards are dull. I thought he was <laughs> going to say, I'll work and no play, play the Kalashtar dull. <laughs> all right. Mine is um, it's less of a sort of a folklore, self-Kalashtar history thing. It's more of just a kind of like a, a something that... Uh, one or a few of the Kalashtar uh, experienced and brought back to the, the group of sort of something else in the world. Um, it's uh, just a, an interesting tale that flits through Xanatari's mind. Uh, here we go. I sort of wrote it out. Uh, so bear with me if it sounds red, but I'll see how we can do. All right. <clears throat> M many leagues away, uh, a clan of dwarves lives near the port city of Daslogur. The, the city is perched atop a, a massive cliff ringing the harbor, but the dwarves had established themselves there long before, though not at the heights of the cliff. They had carved out an existent, uh, extensive cavern system at the foot of the cliff where it meets the sea. In their efforts to expand their habitat, they eventually had to dig below sea level, leading to some interesting issues when the tides came in. A special group of dwarves were assigned to manage and maintain these spaces, uh, forcing them to adjust their sleep schedules as the area experienced two high tides per day. Uh, so they sort of had to be up with the uh, low tide and, uh, and resting with the high tide. So sort of a, a double cyclical uh, sleep schedule. 
uh, this assignment, uh, the this special group, it was handed down uh, from parent to child, so it was inherited uh, in their in this uh, dwarven clan. And over the generations, this this specific group of dwarves that had this assignment, uh, they're now known as within the the group as Tide Turners. They found themselves wholly adapted to a completely different way of living just due to their uh, adjusted sleep. So that's sort of the, the background. So flash forward to just about a, a century ago, so not, not too long. Uh, the city on the cliff, Daslagur, was, was thriving, and it had established a thriving trade with the dwarves below. They had a very sort of symbiotic relationship back and forth. One helped the other. Uh, no hostility at all. Uh, as often seems to happen when uh, things go well, uh, tragedy did strike. A horde of goblinoids invaded the area, threatening the lives of those in the city. Though not large in number, they were led by a bugbear sorcerer who had an extremely powerful artifact, allowing him to force anyone near him into a deep sleep at his will. The city still attempted to fight back the onslaught, as you can imagine, uh, not wanting to uh, to give up, uh, you know, without a fight. But uh, initially, were unable to overcome this bugbear's mighty ability. They quickly sent word to the dwarves below, who immediately provided assistance to their sister city. Their troops met with the same difficulties. With one exception, a few of the dwarves found themselves immune to the sorcerer's artifact. It was quickly realized that these select few were all tide turners. Apparently, their modified sleep patterns were, went unaffected by the magic taking out those all around them. The rest of the tide turners went forth to meet the enemy, and though the ensuing battle was long and hard fought, they managed to beat back the attacking horde and slay the bugbear sorcerer. They destroyed this artifact of sleep, uh, lest its powers be used again for evil ends. And, uh, the remaining Tide Turners were celebrated by all, both in the city above and in the caverns below, for saving uh, them from you know certain destruction from this invading force. And uh, to this day, uh, a representative of the Tide Turners is always included now in the board of officials governing the uh, the city above. So just something that uh, happened to be. Born witness to by at least one of the the Kalishtar and brought back when that happened about a century ago. Cool. Is anybody curious as to the story as to why the Kalish why treants are always depicted with a flower? Why treants are always depicted as a fl- with a flower? Yeah, you know, like you you got the walking tree, but there's the. Uh, there's always like a flower or something sticking around in one of the pictures. Sure. Well, there's a very short story about a young girl in the Kalish Tar. Again, her name horribly lost to the current level of DM inventing on the fly. <laughs> we have terrible memories overall as a people, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> Let's say it's something along the lines of maybe a Meredith or, you know, some interesting translation of those. But the Kalishtar had settled down. You know, they're more starting to build cities. They've had a couple that have been built. And this is kind of a nice one. But everyone's got their house. And this little girl is outside. And she's been taught how to scoop out some earth, put some seeds in, you know, cover the earth water it. Basically, she's learned that, you know, from Mother Toral will come, if if you share with her, to go off your story originally, Zanatari, that uh, she will return 
good wishes or she will return good thoughts or if you share, she will share. So this little girl had had some successes and had helped her mom and dad and brothers raise some crops. Well, she was still at the age where things went bump in the night and there was scary stuff. But one day she was planting and she found a purple seed. And she didn't understand why that seed was in there, but, well, it was a seed, so seeds go on the ground. She planted it in, and within a week of tending, a very pretty flower appeared. And she was very, very pleased with this one. It wasn't a weed, because she'd been told what to pull. Nobody else seemed to mind the flower being there. They all thought that it was very pretty, and how can we get one? It was all very impressive. And she nurtured it, knowing full well that, you know, this flower would not last beyond the, the current planting season. But, you know, she, she had hopes that maybe she'd be able to find a way to get another pretty flower, because this was really nice and special. Well, there was some sort of emergency that happened and required the evacuation of the city. Well, she could take a very little limited amount of stuff, but there was a chance she was not going to be able to come back. This worried her. You know, this, this caused her much, much crying and much, many problems. And, and she wailed and she fought and she thought about picking the flower. At least as she went away, there would be, you know, something that she could hold to remind herself really aside from her parents, uh, and family. But she was afraid of going back then to the city if the flower wasn't there, because, you know, there could be destruction there. She knew bad things. Well, she had fretted enough and cried enough the night before that they were to leave very early in the morning that Mother Toral decided that this little girl and these people, the Kalashtar, being forced from their homes, needed something to go with them. And there was a rumble in the garden steady rumble and then it was a rumble as if the sound itself was trying to find the surface of the garden everyone being so preoccupied with having packed and kind of afraid of what whatever it was was coming along didn't pay so much mind but the rumbling sound actually put the little girl to sleep in the morning they all hustled hustled her out before they could wake her and, you know, had her covered up and everything, and they, they ran. Well, nobody is sure how much time had passed, but by the end of that day, they had set up their, um, they had set up their tent, they had made their distance, they went to sleep. In the distance, they had been hearing that rumble behind them. They thought that it was whatever problem was being caused, whatever was forcing them away. In the morning when they woke up, though, they found that there was a semicircular disturbed patch of ground exactly behind the tent where their house would have been. And in that patch was that very pretty flower. Nobody knew how it got there. Nobody saw it get there. I mean, there were tents all around, but still spaced out enough that, you know, 
the flower was there. Oh, the girl was overjoyed. She said, I'm not going to pick it, but I'm going to look at it. I'm not at home. This is home for the moment, but we're going to be moving on. But okay, it calmed her. It gave her strength. It told her that there was still beauty in the world despite all this chaos. The family moves on, but she's okay because she's seen this thing. She knows that there's something that can, you know, steal her through this. She's, she's ready for this next day. And they travel and they travel hard that day. They get in. They barely have time to set up their tent before passing out asleep. Again, there's rumbles. But this time when they wake up behind everyone's tent, circular patch of disturbed ground, a pretty flower. Nobody's sure how this happens, but everyone's starting to realize that, you know, they're being chased away, but this is not a threat, but this gives them strength. They realize this little girl has somehow done this, but they're too busy fleeing from whatever is causing the problem. So they can't decide if she's a druid or whatever, or a magician, but they just like the fact that, hey, there's something beautiful here. They travel, they travel, they travel, they travel the next day leaving behind this field of flowers, hoping now that maybe there'll be a populated field by the time that they can return. They get to the next area. They don't even have time to set up the tents. They just fall on the ground where they are asleep. There's rumbles, but this time the little girl wants to know what's going on because she realizes she's going to have her flower because she's heard the rumble. It's not thunder. It's not lightning. It's not whatever's causing them to flee. But coming up, she sees over the hill, the crest of this hill, she sees this flower. And then she sees a whole bunch of other flowers. And it's just like the level of the plateau or whatever that they're at. All she can see is just these flowers marching up. And then she sees what looks like dirt. But there's, you know, these stick, these sticks and stuff and other foliage and whatever popping out and she's there she's you know she's she's doing like all all little kids do even these days for christmas or new year's or tooth fairy or something they've got their eye propped open just enough to hey i'm pretending to be asleep she does this and she's good enough because she's a kid she can fool them she will do this everyone else passed out coming up over the way she sees these walking roots or trees or something she doesn't know what it is but they've got the flower and they're not coming armed with anything. They're not coming, whatever, but they're definitely strange, but whatever it was that caused them to flee, hell of a lot stranger. They got the flower. It's okay. They get up near the, um, near the campsite. They go down on what appears to be all fours and they're trying to sneak up very quietly on the camp. And then they start going into the dirt. And soon it's just kind of like the tail fins of sharks going along where there's disturbed ground where these flowers and parked behind every single family. It stops and there's just a flower. Oh, she's amazed. She's amazed. She's amazed. She stands up, does a dance of joy, wakes, you know, her family up, shakes them, tells them, you know, what she's seen. They're so tired, they all fall back asleep. Even she manages to fall back asleep. They can't run the next day. They just have to sleep. Well, the little girl eventually wakes up, 
and convinces her parents that she's seen something because, well, here again is the flowers. And she sits there and she squats down and she's looking at this flower and she's studying the flower and she starts talking to the flower. And, you know, we know in these days that flowers will learn to grow better if they're sung to or something. You know, it's, it's an old wise tale, perhaps, but, you know, we, we think of it. She manages to coax one of these creatures, the one that has her flower, to poke up itself from the ground just a little bit and looks at her. She can tell that there's no eyes that she can really see, but, you know, just kind of knots of wood, but it seems to look at her. And she's sitting there and she's praising the pretty flower. And then as it comes up, she's not afraid because whatever it is that she's looking at isn't nearly as scary as what forced them away from the home. She talks this creature out. This creature comes out, looks at her, dwarfs this little girl. Doesn't say a thing. But she manages to convince the creature to come out. The other ones realize, the other flower creatures, realize, okay, maybe it's okay to come out. They all come out. The Kalashtar, fully awake, to find themselves surrounded by these plant-type creatures. Big, tall creatures with very pretty flowers that have given them hope. This little girl manages to talk nicely to these creatures. Tells them how pretty they are. Tells them, you know, how much to her they matter. And that, after being, you know, they don't have to hide themselves. Just like how the Kalashtar aren't hiding. They're moving, but they're not hiding. Because they will return that they that these plant creatures shouldn't have to hide as well. Well, with exposure to sun over the course of the travel of the Kalashtar for the next couple of weeks, these creatures develop huge bushy leaves and other stuff because they're able to stand out in the sun. So essentially, she managed to convince the treants to come out and live in the above world. Any of you want to do another one, or are you all good? Okay. I don't know if I have another one. <laughs> you? No, I said I don't know if I have another one. Uh, yeah, okay. All righty then. Sanitary, take us out. Okay, thank you for listening. You can find out more at deathd4dishonor.com. Find us on Twitter at deathd4. And take a listen to the Great Area Podcast about advice and interviews on relationships between gamers at Great Area Podcast on Twitter. And stay tuned for next week, uh, I believe, yes, on Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be recording again on Twitch for two episodes. So come and listen to us next week and uh, stay tuned for a new adventure. <laughs> <laughs>